If you had to choose between giving up your way of life or facing the death of your people, what would you do? And what if it meant having to give up ever feeling like a man, a woman, or your authentic self again? That is the question that the Lakota were facing in the latter half of the 19th century, with the near disappearance of the bison on which their entire way of life depended, including what it meant to be a man, a woman, or a third-gender winktay, they were staring down their own demise, and the question for them was all too real. As we heard last time, the Lakota resolved to make a radical switch. Instead of hunting bison, they would hunt cattle. It was their last, best hope to save their way of life. And so the Lakota became cowboys. But then how did that work out? Were they good at herding? Were they good cowboys? What happened? And were they able to salvage what it meant to them to be a man, a woman, or a winktay? Well, here to help us understand that today is Dr. Jeff Means, a historian specializing in Lakota cultural history and himself a member of the Lakota tribe. Dr. Means not only tells us the story of his people, but true to his trade as a teacher, and gives us a deep sense of what it might be like to have to face that terrible question, do you give up your way of life or accept the demise of your people? What would you do? That's what we're talking about in today's interview episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our Patreon patron, Sean Kelly, for making this episode possible. Folks, this is part two of our series, Sex on the Great Plains, exploring the sex and gender norms of the Lakota in the 19th century. And if you would like a little more background... Go back and listen to the first episode in this series if you haven't already. We've got many more episodes planned after this as well, where we will explore in detail Lakota women, the two-spirit Lakota winktay, and depictions of Native Americans in Western films up to the present day. That's the plan anyway, fingers crossed. The proceeds for this series, by the way, will be donated to One Spirit, a volunteer organization helping the Lakota meet their goal of achieving food sovereignty and self-sufficiency in their communities. Today we're talking to Dr. Jeff Means, Associate Professor of History at the University of Wyoming in the field of Native American history. His primary area of interest is Great Plains Indian culture and colonial cultural encounters. Oglala Lakota cultural history in the 18th and 19th century is his primary area of focus. Jeff is currently working on his first book, which examines Oglala Lakota cultural transformations and cattle during the 19th and early 20th century. Jeff Means is an enrolled member of the Oglala Sioux tribe, and he also happens to be the nephew of famed activist Russell Means. Dr. Means is going to tell us the story of his people and how the desperate switch to cattle hunting went for them in the end. But first, he gives us a sense of what it might be like to have to face the question the Lakota we're facing. Give up your way of life or die. Do you have time for me to tell a brief story on that I tell my students that kind of because it helps them kind of relate to the experience Native Americans went through? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go for it then. What I'll do is, and I'm not an artist, but I go up to the whiteboard and I draw a map of the United States, right? And I then, and we have what, 330 million people in the United States. And so I tell my class, oh my gosh, a disease epidemic has come through and killed 90% of our population. We now have 33 million Americans left, okay? And what's happening is the rest of the cultures around the world are looking at all this and going, well, now it's time to go in there and, and change things. And I'll change from aliens or the Chinese, but sometimes I, I most often use the Chinese culture because it's so unbelievably different than ours and it, it provides a good contrast. But what if then when we were weakened, the Chinese started landing on the Pacific shore um, and saying they were there to help, 
help us become uh, better by, you know, basically taking over. Now, of course, we would resist them, right? We're Americans, gosh darn it. Mm -hmm. Red, white, and blue, and democracy, we would fight and we would lose, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, And after we fought and lost, they took us all and stuck us in a reservation called Nebraska. Now, let's say after this conflict, there's 25 million Americans left. 8 million of us have died. 25 million Americans in Nebraska. Can we fend for ourselves? Yeah. Have you been to Nebraska? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing against Nebraskans. It's a lovely state. I love it. But there's no way you can actually feed yourself. So we become completely dependent upon the Chinese culture for sustenance. They are then going to take over the rest of the United States. It's their territory now. And what they're going to do, though, uh, in their benevolence is because the Chinese culture, which, by the way, is thousands of years old, it's ancient compared to ours. I mean, we were as the United States, we're a baby when it comes to national longevity. And they're going to help us become civilized like they are. So what they're going to do is, first of all, we don't need religion. Okay. As communists, religion is gone. So they're going to outlaw things like the Bible, the Quran, uh, the Torah, all that gone. Okay. Churches will be changed to, I don't know, whatever, uh, convenience stores. Okay. (laughs) Uh, They will, when they outlaw that, they will then collect all the Bibles, everything they can and destroy them. All right. Then they're going to decide that what they really need to do is, is change kind of most things about us. We need to speak their language, et cetera. So they're going to take all our children and they're going to take them out of Nebraska and put them in schools all around Nebraska where they're going to be taught various different Chinese languages, whether it's Mandarin or Cantonese. I mean, they speak a lot of different languages, but they're going to be taught Chinese. They're going to be taught how to be communists. Uh, They're going to be taught how to be like them, not like us. Okay. And as I'm sitting here describing this kind of process, students start to finally understand that this is exactly what Native Americans not only went through, but are still going through, okay? And all the other things that are, you you, you know, food differences. Would we be eating American food anymore? No, which is probably a good thing, because I got to tell you, (laughs) American food is notoriously bad. Uh, (laughs) It really is. We eat horribly. But we would be eating a different diet. We would not have any of the kinds of opportunities that make a man a man in the United States and a woman a woman, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. What would we be willing to compromise in order to still call ourselves Americans? We're not going to be democratic anymore. We might be democratic in our own little units and in our own kinds of ways in Nebraska, but Chinese are going to tell us exactly what kind of government we're going to have, and it's going to be communistic and uh, so on. Our language is going to be attacked. Our religion is gone these kinds of things. Now we would resist, right? We would try and doggedly hold on to our American identity, which is what natives did. So how would we do that? We would resist in any way we could. We'd conceal little American flags in the inside of our clothing, right? Or we'd hide our religious material. Um, We would try and just maintain as much of American culture as we possibly could. You know, that would be how it's all played out. And so when we're talking about Native Americans, that's when my students finally kind of go, oh, I get it now. Okay, because in American history, if you and you have been educated in the United States, you know nothing of this process, right? You're not told about this in textbooks or anything else. You have to go to college to even take a class on something like this. And if you're not taking that class, then you're never going to be exposed to this information. So it's really eye-opening, and I and so I just want your listeners to kind of get that context and, and and understand that this is the reality for Native Americans still today. We're still a colonized people. We have a dual identity as Americans and natives, and it's very strange because we're very proud to be Americans. I mean, I served in the United States Marine Corps for four years. I'm very proud of this country, but at the same time, I'm also a very proud Lakota. Absolutely. That that really makes it hit home. And there's you're right, there is so much that we're just not told as we're growing up. I mean, I I grew up here in Minnesota. I had no idea until the la- just the last couple of years that there was a mini version, like a, a, another version of the Trail of Tears here in Minnesota, where 
the Dakota people were marshaling the Minnesota River. There was the largest mass hanging in U.S. history right here in Minnesota, and not a peep the whole time I was growing up. Yeah, that's... And it, I just, I feel sad, guilty, betrayed, you know, just all of that. Yeah, and um, you're not you're not alone. It, most of the people who get exposed to this um, have one or two reactions. Either they're like you, or they just deny the whole thing and don't want to, because it threatens your identity, doesn't it? Yeah, as an American, because yeah. as Americans, we're told how good we are, how we're for democracy and freedom for all, and equal opportunity, and all these kinds of things. And when you're exposed to information that counters that and puts a black eye on our history, then, you know, it really fundamentally threatens the core identity of a lot of people, um, makes them very uncomfortable. So that is Dr. Means' analogy to really help us comprehend what it was that the Lakota were staring down and are still to some extent facing today. Now let's turn to his area of specialty, the cattle hunt. As the Lakota turned from hunting bison to hunting cattle in the late 19th century, what did that actually look like? Could you please give us, in your own words, a visual description of what you envision a Lakota cattle hunt might have looked like in the mid to late 19th century? Uh, sure. Uh, paint you a picture here. Uh, the, these would all be steers for the most part, that had okay. been driven to the uh, reservation as part of the federal government's uh, treaty obligations to provide a pound of beef or a pound and a half of beef per day uh, to each individual on the, on the reservation. So they would weigh them on these scales, they'd be in the corral. And then what would happen is once they were finished with that, uh, they would turn the steers loose. And once they had done so, and the steers were heading out across the plains, then uh, mounted Lakota men would um, follow them and kill them just like they had buffalo uh, for a century. So if you could imagine riding up alongside them and shooting with an arrow, down goes the steer. Each hunter would have arrows probably marked very personally, so you could tell who got what, um, although oh, it's less important. Uh, at this point, because everybody's going to be sharing uh, like they always had. But the uh, the whole uh, nation would be there. They would come out then, the men who would do the hunting and oftentimes uh, then begin the skinning process as well and so on. Um, the women and the elderly and the kids would all come up to partake in the bounty, you know, depending on who was there and everything. I mean, they might be like cutting off chunks of liver or kidney and tossing it to the kids, like a little butterscotch candy at church from grandma's purse. And they would just, mm, that was so good. Uh, but that's what they, that was a treat. Right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, once the animals have been skinned, the women begin processing the hides and the, the meat as well. Generally you're going to have a feast and you're going to eat a lot of it at, at that time, but then the rest is going to be dried um, and saved for later. Uh, there's going to be the tanning of the hides for sale. Uh, mm -hmm. The Lakota would, uh, they, well, they, they were sold by the Indian agent um, and the Lakota were told they were going to get 50 cents per hide, but mostly the Indian agent kept that. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> you know, that, that's kind of what you would see uh, if you can envision it there. Uh, there'd be hundreds, if not thousands of people there out on issue day. So um, it would be quite a festive time. There'd be singing, dancing, etc. Awesome. And so the skinning part, do you know if it was either mainly men or mainly women, or was it both? Both. Both. It was both. Uh, okay. And, and it would depend on, you know, just the workload at the time. Um, you know, if a guy was not married, he'd have to do his own skinning or something like <laughs> this, right? Um, if you've sure. got a wife or several wives, you know, perhaps they're um, already hard at work, etc. I mean, everything's a little different though with cattle than it was with buffalo, um, mm -hmm. in the sense that the Lakota culture's already changed significantly by the time they're actually hunting this issued beef. In uh, for those who are actually there at the reservation doing this, their their life is different than it had been before. So mm -hmm. this kind of process is a little bit different. But fundamentally, yeah, both would uh, help out. Um, women mostly were the processors, uh, as far as that went, men were the hunters, but 
everybody would lend a hand when needed. And a lot of, you know, young men and women would obviously be doing the bidding of their mothers and aunts and uncles and so on. So it's kind of, it was, you know, all hands on deck. Cool. Out of curiosity, do you happen to know of any role that might've been played by Winkte, which are um, in more modern terms might be called one of the versions of two spirit folk, but back then, of course, they didn't have that word. Probably not specifically in the hunt. They were actually uh, far too powerful and important to mm. uh, have a, a significant role in something so mundane as food procurement. Um, <laughs> uh, they often, uh, th their roles varied so much, but they were seen as very um, powerful, very um, insightful people, um, very good speakers, etc. So they were used in a lot of different ways foretelling um, of battles, things like that. Uh, they would act as mediators in marriages a lot. They were seen as great matchmakers, all kinds of things, but usually very much more important kind of things. They were you know, healers a lot of times, these kinds of things. So mm -hmm. yeah, just a, uh, they would be there and be participating, but they wouldn't have a specific role in it. And uh, again, just too mundane for their power. And when you say power, do you mean spiritual power? Do you mean political power or both? Um, again, it's it's a complex tapestry of, of cultural uh, web here, but um, both really, but um, spiritual power for the most part, uh, mm -hmm. would, would, would I be talking about in, in this kind of sense, they might've been used previously with uh, during Buffalo hunts to, you know, call Buffalo or to find a Buffalo or to mediate between the Buffalo people and uh, the nation to try and, you know, come together and have the Buffalo sacrifice themselves, these kinds of things. But when the government's just herding the cattle in and putting them in a corral and letting them loose, uh, the Winkte, that's, that's, yeah, that's below their social level, cultural level. That's fascinating. And the, the phrase that you used to Buffalo people too, I, I'm, I'm guessing what you mean is a cultural perspective where you see the animal world as your relatives. Am, am I picking up on that correctly? Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Uh, animals were sentient. Animals had power. Um, they were part of God's creation. Um, and you had relationships with all of them. Um, and just like you had a relationship with God, and this was based on kinship, which must be nurtured and you know, so you followed very specific ceremonial practices with specific animals, uh, et cetera, so that you would not make them angry because, you, you you know, animals had power and you didn't want them using their power against you. You wanted to work together, uh, et cetera. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of bison, the whole reason, of course, why they've reached this point where now they're hunting cattle is because the bison it was no longer viable to sustain the traditional Lakota way of life. And so why was that? And also, why did they have to continue hunting? Why couldn't they just turn to farming, for example, like the U.S. government wanted them to do? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, complex questions, actually. Yeah. Uh, the buffalo were diminishing for a lot of different reasons, uh, but buffalo hunting specifically, um, precipitated the massive population drop um, as their, I mean, but as westward uh, movement of the United States went out into the plains, Buffalo became confined in the much smaller areas where they could go. Their herds be, it got split in two by the Oregon Trail. You had a northern herd and a southern herd now. And you hear these stories, of these millions of Buffalo in one herd, right, that stretch forever. Well, that was a very uh, contemporary kind of development at that time. Buffalo normally didn't travel in massive herds like that because they would overgraze an area and overdrink an area. Um, the only reason they were doing so is because they had to come together. There was less territory for them to be in, but that made them even more susceptible to large numbers of deaths due to buffalo hunting because you could set up and just kill thousands of them in one day. Uh, and so as their numbers went down and as natives became confined on reservations, even the small numbers of buffalo left, the natives still had to get permission to go and hunt them, um, even if there were some there. Um, and that wasn't seen as progressive. 
Uh, Native Americans uh, hunting is not progressive. Native Americans farming is progressive, as you mentioned. But why didn't the Lakota embrace farming? Well, first of all, they don't want to farm. They're not a farming culture. This is not what they do. Okay. Um, they are perfectly happy eating farm goods. They often traded for corn and all these various different kinds of other items with various different uh, nations around them, but they were a Buffalo centered culture. Um, and so what you're asking them to fundamentally change everything about themselves, if you're asking them to farm. Moreover, the region in which they're settled is absolutely not useful in farming. Um, it's Western South Dakota. It's even today, people ranch there. They're, they're, it's ranching country. It's far too dry. There's not enough uh, rainfall even today. Um, and it's getting drier, as we know. And so asking to do that was a heavy ask. Now, what you're going to find are some individuals are more inclined to give it a try. Others are not. But overall, it's, it's a pretty big failure on the reservation, despite the concerted efforts of Indian agents to get them to farm. It, I mean, they just, you know, reports were like, oh, you know, had 2,000 acres cultivated, grasshoppers ate it, fire burned it down, drought. Yeah, I mean, it just, it just was a failed effort. Yeah, yeah. And I found it really almost amusing, kind of, in your work, too, when I read that even at that time when they're trying to encourage uh, the tribes to take up farming, like what were the settlers doing in that same area? Were any of them farming? No, no. absolutely not. No, there was ranching all around them. Yeah. Um, but you see, the the bureaucracy that's making these decisions is based in Washington, D.C., and it's already been decided that in order to civilize Native Americans, they ha we have to turn them into yeoman farmers, which is still that Jeffersonian ideal of an individual self-sufficient kind of person, right? But what's unbelievably ironic is that even at this time in the eight, late 1800s, the yeoman farmer ideal has long since passed. This is the, the transition into industrialized farming and much larger kinds of corporate farming, that kind of thing. Um, this is when farmers were starting to be perceived in general culture as rubes and hayseeds. You know, I mean, they're, they're the, the folk who aren't sophisticated like all the city folk and so on and so you you have them pushing this false idea on native americans to be this yeoman farmer when at the same time americans have no respect for the average farmer anyway that's a really interesting point yeah because it's almost like asking them to go back a step in, in terms of like social status perhaps yeah and i mean in most places that were given to Native Americans as reservations or negotiated by Native nations as reservations weren't conducive to farming in the West. I mean, John Wesley Powell said, that, you know, there was like 2% of the West could be farmed and the rest ought to be used for either ranching or minerals and things like that. I mean, it's not like everybody knew it, but again, perception is much stronger than reality. If you perceive something to be true, you're going to act upon that rather than reality. And so, by gosh, we're going to civilize these Native Americans. And, we're, and that, that's where you get allotment. And that's where you get all of these ideas about how to force Native Americans to be more like us. And again, what's ironically is this is during the Jim Crow, height of Jim Crow, height of racism within the United States. Uh, all during this period, you're going to see the rise of the power and uh, really reach of organizations like the Ku Klux Klan, etc. I mean, it reaches its peak in the 19 teens and 20s. And, you know, it's, it's just so paradoxical to me, and oxymoronic to, to try and force a people who you are actively racist against to join society when you really don't want them in society in the first place. I hear you. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of like trying to make Native Americans more like us with resp specific respect to the farming. Like in in white settler culture, farming is seen as men's work because it's like, you know, hard labor in the fields. But that was not necessarily the case for the Lakota, right? Well, uh, we weren't a, a farming nation per se, but almost every farming nation in Native American culture, women dominated the agricultural mm -hmm. aspect of it. And it's because women were the ones who created it almost inevitably. 
they were the they were the gatherers. They were the ones who first came up with the ideas of okay, maybe we should cultivate this plant. We like this plant. Let's get rid of the other plants. Let's see if we can't help this plant, and then we'll come back and see what we've got. And so it's women who led, and it's women who oftentimes had the most political power uh, within these kinds of uh, societies, like uh, the Haudenosaunee or the um, Iroquois, as most people know them. Um, women were the ones who voted on the leaders. Now, inevitably, they chose men, but it was the women who got the vote. Men were the ones who had no say in this um, because the women controlled the agriculture and the Iroquois were fundamentally an agricultural tribe. They got most of their nourishment and uh, economic capital from corn. And so uh, these kinds of situations arose. So yeah, um, when you're asking any native nation to farm in a traditional European style or American style, yeah, you're absolutely switching gender roles then. And that's really hard for any culture to absorb, deal with psychologically. Um, it's just, it, it's wrenching really, I mean, to think about it. And, and it's so flippant to kind of look back and say, oh, well, why don't you just go to farming? And it seems so simple. And yet it's so complex when you're talking about all of these cultural normatives and gender roles and everything else that's involved with something like this. It's not just this little economic change you're asking for. Right. It's fundamental cultural shift. Yeah. I'm actually stunned to the degree to which many tribes were willing to take up farming where they hadn't had it before precisely for these reasons. And you're in this particular case, like other option. (laughs) (laughs) When you're under the power of the United States government and they're telling you to farm um, and all the resources that they're providing are geared toward farming, what do you do? You farm. Right. Yeah. Again, adapting, changing to the the circumstances as, as rough as they were. Uh, I liked that your your story, your analogy touched on the the real cultural contrast between like you can't be democratic or you kind of can be in your own little unit, but overall, like we're going to tell you, you're basically going to be communistic, right? Um, because that does relate like in a very close way to what did happen to the Lakota, right? And in the case of the uh, switch from bison hunting to cattle hunting, I found it interesting in your work that in many cases, they chose to own the cattle herds in common. Not in every case, uh, but in many cases, it was a collective sort of concept of ownership, which recalled the the Tioshbaye, uh Correct my pronunciation if you can. Very good. Um, <laughs> uh, the Tioshbaye, uh extended family units or camps that that they would live in, and so I wanted to ask you. Like, why, why was this so important to maintaining the Lakota way of life, to own the cattle in common like this? Um, one of the fundamental uh, differences between Western culture and Native culture is uh, that economics is kind of the foundation of Western culture. Everything else builds from that, whereas in Native culture, it's kinship. Because kinship is fundamentally vital for your survival, but also for um, the continuation of your nation, right? Um, And so all of this kind of derives from the idea of kinship, right? And that means that you put the needs of everyone ahead of the individual. Um, Being someone who was seen as accumulating their own personal wealth is actually a bad trait. Whereas in the United States, he who dies with the most stuff wins, according to George Carlin. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) may he rest in peace. Uh, And so and so that kind of drive for success and uh, economic success and economic security is outside Lakota cultural thought process, right? It's, oh, well, we'll have this all in common because that way it'll maintain who we are as a culture. This will keep us going. That's why they hunted cattle is because their foundation was based on loosely organized kinship groups that came together in larger bands and formed, you know, nations within nations 
Uh, there were seven nations within the larger Lakota nation, and there are seven nations within the larger Dakota nation, of which the Lakota are just one. And so um, this is all managed through the idea of kinship. Because when you have kinship with somebody, you feel safe with them, don't you? Yeah, you feel safe with them. You, you know, you're, you're in it together, right? Now, you know, that means you have to, if you're going to really like have an exchange of goods, you have to have at least a fictive kinship first, a temporary kinship, so that everything is safe. Because if you were trying to trade with a nearby nation, there you run the risk that they could just try, they could kill everybody in the trade group and then take the stuff, right? But if you establish kinship first, an exchange of gifts, a, a, some kind of ceremonial uh, understanding, then you can make the exchange with the assurity of safety and, and everybody benefits, right? And this is how you create kinship and this is how you build kinship and, and go on from there. So, you know, that means that owning cattle in common is going to help you maintain that political cultural structure, whereas owning it individually is going to dissolve that culture and fragment it because then all of a sudden it's going to be about my property my individual stuff. It's basically an attempt to adapt to the new reservation reality and try and maintain as much of who you are as a Lakota as you possibly can. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's the opposite of what just the average person growing up in the U.S. would think, because in capitalistic culture, you, you have more influence among your people when you have more wealth. But in the case of the Lakota way of life, it's it's actually giving away wealth that gains you influence. Is that right? Yes. In fact, I one of my favorite stories is a couple of army officers were talking, and I don't remember the details of it uh, too specifically. But one of them asked, "Well, when we go, when we reach this native, uh, this Lakota village, how will we know who the chief is?" And the, the experienced officer turns to him and looks and says, "The well, that's easy. You just look for the guy that looks." like the poorest, most bedraggled guy in the, in the village. And that'll be the chief because he's given away all of his stuff. Okay. If you're, you know, and that's not really true because if you were a respected chief like that, your uh, family would make you beautiful clothing, by the way, mm. uh, for political <laughs> meetings and stuff like that. But the idea was that, yeah, somebody who doesn't have a lot of stuff, right. Um, now this changed over time. There's differences. I mean, horses started to become kind of, hierarchical item within mm -hmm. a lot of plains cultures um and so you actually did begin to have those who were horse rich and horse poor hmm. okay but it was still considered uh the polite thing to do that if somebody who didn't have a horse wanted to go hunting wanted to borrow one of your horses you would say yes here you go take my horse you know then what you would do is when you killed something and brought back you would give that person half the meat you know and and that way you're maintaining kinship as opposed to, you know, uh, dividing a wedge between the haves and have nots and so on. Yeah, that's, I find that really fascinating, though, just a, an economy based on gifting. To get back to the herding of cattle, which is, you know, ultimately where all of this derives out of. So the Lakota made the switch from buffalo to cattle, and then how did that work out for them? Were they good herdsmen? Uh, oh, yeah. They... Um, they were basically making the switch to true pastoralism. Um, and uh, they were doing very well. In fact, uh, the better Indian agents often commented on how well, you know, things are going, their herds were growing. Um, and by the way, you know, because they were issued steers, they didn't get the cat. They had to, like, purchase the cattle, get the cattle in. Because steers, if I remember correctly, I didn't grow up on a ranch. Uh, castrated but that means bulls. A castrated bull. So, yes. yeah. so you not, can't be making more cows. You ain't this making way. more cows with the steers. They're just for meat. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. And so they, they wanted the herds of their own. And they looked around at what the cattle ranches around them had. And they said, we want some of those cattle. And then they started herding them. And they, they actually, have you heard of the um, great kill off, the winter of, Yep, for the first time in your work, yeah. Yeah, yeah when yep. like 90% of the cattle on the Northern Plains died. Mm -hmm. The Lakota actually suffered hardly any losses because they actually went out and cared for their cattle during those times because the way they did it in American ranching is they just simply turned the cattle loose. 
and let them fend for themselves for the most part uh, because they were on open ranges. And then in the spring, they would come together and round them up and, and so on. And they survived the winter a, cer a certain way. Well, the Lakota actually, because they were on the reservation, they went out and fed hay. They, you know, they, they saved cattle that couldn't find us something to drink by breaking ice and things like this. So they actually did much better <laughs> than the white counterparts around there who lost almost all of their herds. And actually increased their herds at the same time that those around them lost like, yeah, yeah, almost absolutely. All. Um, no, they were uh, really outstanding at it. Um, but of course, that dream of maintaining a, a mounted armed Lakota culture on the reservation is not what the United States wants. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They don't want a bunch of Lakota roaming around Western South Dakota pastorally herding and then hunting and killing cattle mm -hmm. that's not civilized and so that then leads to divisions within the tribe and some who want to go more in the traditional way of life and some who want to adopt what the u.s government is telling them to adopt sounds like it was a recipe for disaster. Oh, it is. Um, and almost all Native nations are going to experience this to some degree or other, uh, usually very detrimentally, because what it does is, and again, go back to the analogy of all us Americans in, in Nebraska. What if there's an opportunity? I don't know. Do you have a family or? Not um, in Nebraska. <laughs> no, I mean, you specifically. Do you have family at all or brothers, sisters? Yes, I do. Yep. Okay. I, have, um, I have mother, father, brothers, and wife. Okay. So if you were able to feed them better in Nebraska by learning to speak Chinese and buying into the communist ideal and taking a position in Nebraska that would pay you more, that would provide you more resources to provide your family, would you do that if it meant you had to sign on for Chinese national identity? In other words, you completely abdicate your American citizenship. Mm -hmm. refuse to speak English anymore and become a diehard communist. Would you do that if it meant you could provide for your family better? And this is the kind of question that every Native American in this country has to ask. What are they willing to do when it comes to accommodating this new reality, which is the United States, who wants you to behave this way? We, the United States punishes you if you do this, but it rewards you if you do this. Like if you go to a Native American healer, you can be fined or thrown in jail. And so will the healer if they catch him, you know, because that's forbidden. That's outlawed. All right. Wow. But if you do what the United States wants, they'll give you resources like wire and, and nails and fence posts. And they'll provide you with a hoe and all the implements you need for farming, et cetera. Um, what are you willing to do? And so you get these divisions within all native nations, Lakota are no different. And that exists to this day, literally on every, in, within every native nation, um, those mm -hmm. divisions, those fractures became permanent and created a situation where, you know, you have a lot of different native identities, even within the same native nation on the same reservation. Like my grandma was a diehard Catholic. But at the same time, she also went to Lakota ceremonies, okay? She had a picture of Jesus on the wall, and we had to do the Catholic prayer before we ate, okay? But she went to these ceremonies and, and did all this stuff, too. And that's because the Catholic Church was the first one to proselytize on Pine Ridge and Rosebud and, and so on. And so you adopt that within your own religious way. Um, in other words, you simply incorporate Catholicism within what you already know about God, and your kinship with God, and the ceremonies that you provide. And thank goodness the Catholics were very ceremonial, so that was good. Um, the Lakota could still have religious ceremony in that kind of a context, but that's going to lead to political divisions, and then you get to the situation where, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I was alive back in the 60s and 70s at the height uh -huh. of the AIM movement, and yeah. um, all that kind of stuff. And I can remember my dad, my brother, just talking about sellouts, apples. They were red on the outside, but white on the inside. And, you know, that's that that was their perspective. Right. But if you're someone who supported the, you know, the tribal government as it was, 
you know, you have your own perspective on life, such as, you know, I'm sorry, but I have a job with the BIA and I'm making a living and I'm bringing home groceries and all this kind of stuff. So get off my back. Yeah, I, that's especially poignant to me, the way you frame it, where it's like, what are you willing to compromise, but still provide for your family? Because A, I think anybody can relate to that second part, but still provide for your family. But B, we also have to remember that we're talking about a, a collective culture versus a, an individualistic culture. It's very easy for someone like myself to to be like, well, I would follow my principles, but that's an individualistic point of view. Uh, whereas, you know, in a collective culture, it's like, that's a much tougher decision. And also family is not just nuclear family, but extended family, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the way that, and again, the United States government was very good at the carrot and stick. Um, and if you say that, you know, because you're following your principles, you basically only get the government ration that is provided every month. Okay, you get a nice big jar of government lard and you get some flour, which is how Indian fry bread came to uh, fruition, by the way, is because the, the things that were issued to the Native Americans, what they decide, what did you create? Well, you created Indian fry bread. Um, and this is what you get, right? But holding to your principles, you also decide that when you were sick, you go to a healer who's always been able to help you. And somebody tells on you to get a reward okay now the indian agent or the agent in nebraska says you're not getting your ration for the next two months hmm. now your family is going to be suffering now you can go to your our other americans around us and say hey i'm i'm not going to be getting any food for the next two months can you guys help out and sure but that then puts more strain on them right yeah. And it's only people who think like you that are going to help you. Right. And so those are also going to be the ones that are only living on the government handout. So, um, yeah, and it causes it causes a lot of divisions within the nation. It's real hard feelings between groups, et cetera. Yeah, I could definitely believe that. So we saw how the Lakota herded cattle. They actually did quite well in terms of just the pure herding of it. But how did this and um today they don't uh, or at least it's not this is they don't do a cattle hunt like they used to right um right everything's mm -hmm. individually owned now um there's still a lot of cattle ranching at pine ridge uh, but it none of it's done in common i mean there's a there's common land and there's uh um a, a common herd now but it's not going to provide for uh the nation um so most of it's very individualized since allotment in mm -hmm. the early 1900s by the way, folks, what Jeff referenced there, allotment, well, that was a policy instituted by the Dawes Act in 1887 that divvied up reservation lands into parcels given to individual tribal members who could then sell them off if they wished to tribal or non-tribal members, which ultimately resulted in what's called checkerboarding, basically a patchwork checkerboard of land that's tribal and non-tribal. So when you look at a map and you see a reservation and you think, oh, that's nice, they have all that land. Well, actually, uh, no, they usually don't. In most cases, tribal members actually own a mere fraction, usually less than 50% of what you see on the map as supposed reservation land reserved for tribes. And today, many tribes have repatriation programs to try to buy back some of that lost land. Okay, back to Jeff's story. It, it basically what happens is the federal government, <laughs> and I, you know, <laughs> forgive me, but <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, that old say, oh, I'm here from the government. I'm here to help. No, you're not. You know, it's like uh, the federal government from the native perspective is never a good thing. Um, they're going to continue to uh, create policies that are going to disenfranchise the Lakota from their own land economically and politically. So in other words, what they're going to do is they're going to say, you know what, instead of you guys ranching, what it would be better is if we leased all your land to these outside cattle interests, these big white owned uh, cattle ranches, and then they'll pay you money and then we'll take that money and then you guys can live off that. And so you get to the point where in the early 1900s, two thirds 
of Pine Ridge Indian Reservation is leased to outside cattle interests. You know, I mean, the same thing happened with Native nations that had timber or mm -hmm. anything else, right? I mean, at Wind River Indian Reservation here in Wyoming, uh, there's a lot of natural gas, oil, stuff like this. Um, well, the nation doesn't run that business itself. The government has made contracts with private enterprises that get all the natural gas and oil, and then they pay the, the nation a certain amount of money. But guarantee the nation would be making a lot more money if they were, you know, owned it themselves. But it's one of those really expensive businesses where you need tens of billions of dollars to really have an oil corporation. And so it's, it, you know, the, the attempt to maintain their cultural structure fails in the face of more government bureaucratic policies and laws, et cetera, that simply tried to force the Lakota to not only become Americans, but also kind of fit in with the new government policy because by, you know, by 1880, the United States attempts to assimilate Native Americans had kind of ended um, in any real way. And at that point, by the 1880s, um, by the way, a great book called uh, The Final Promise by Fred Hoxie that talks about this, but the, the government shifted more toward, you know what, we're, we're just going to continue to confine Native Americans, use them as cheap labor and then take the resources that are on the reservations and use them for ourselves. And that, so there was no real desire to assimilate after 1880. Um, like the Dawes Act was kind of the last gasp of that kind of ideological thinking from Washington, DC. But um, yeah, from, you know, just cheap labor and resources. And so, you know, all native nations, economic enterprises kind of fell under that in the early 1900s. And with the hunt in particular, there was something in your work that suggested uh, it was 1889, and there were some new regulations yep. about what the local Indian agent was able to determine about how the slaughtering of cattle was going to happen, which effectively ended the yeah. hunts. Is that um, right? All uh, superintendents or Indian agents, the name changes over time, but uh, they're all appointed by the president of the United States. And they were probably the closest thing that we had to a dictator in this country at the time, because they completely controlled every aspect of what went on on that reservation. Um, they could set policies. They had to get permission for you to leave the reservation and go visit family on another one. I mean, they had complete oh control God. over everything you did. If you wanted to sell some of your cattle, you had to get their permission. Once the United States got enough control, and they'd always seen this practice as barbaric, you know, I mean, those who witnessed it often, you know, use the word barbaric and savage way because it's not the, you know, the invisible way that we kill cattle here in the United States, right? I mean, somehow they just end up on your plate, um, you know, because there's nothing brutal about the process that happens in Chicago and Omaha and all that, right? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, once they got enough control by 1889, um, they basically just said, no more. You guys need to become more civilized. Um, and this was seen as one a holdover of the savage days and therefore shouldn't be um, condoned or nor allowed. The thing that you said about uh, the agent controlling, even if you could go on or off the reservation and visit someone, I was curious if... Uh, when that ended or if it has no not ended. really uh, it's not ended yet again natives are still colonized very much um native americans uh since the um 90s i'd say i'd put it at i mean the civil, it's kind of started in the civil rights movement but after the 90s we uh, natives started getting more and more autonomy within the reservation and able to make decisions for themselves like the curriculum their students would be taught which might include your native language for the first time, um, these kinds of things, uh, making contracts with people who are going to be doing business on the reservation can now be done by the Native Nation itself and not the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So there have been some gains, but, you know, the story I like to tell is my, my grandma once, you know, because she had a HUD home, everybody on the reservation has a HUD home. Well, she asked my dad to put in a back porch. Just a little, you know, just a little thing that came off the, the back of the home there and a screen door. 
And I, I think they're still waiting for permission to do that. He just went ahead and did it. <laughs> but the bureaucracy <laughs> moves so slowly, you know, sure. that my grandma's been passed away now for about, you know, 15 years. And, uh, you know, it's just insane. Yeah, uh, yeah, they still control a whole lot of what goes on with, within Native nations. It's just something that most people have absolutely no idea about. Well, that's really interesting to hear. And so interesting the way you framed the whole thing uh, here. So I, I'm really grateful for you being with us here today, Jeff. I can always tell, like I, I interview a lot of academics, but I could, I could always tell the ones that actually have teaching students as part of their, a main part of their job, as opposed to yeah. pure research. Um, I was a teacher for years too, not in university, but um, so... Yeah, I, I, you can really tell your charisma. And oh, talents. thank you. I, <laughs> I love so teaching. Thank you. <laughs> That's my favorite part of the job. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, there you have it, folks. The story of the Lakota cattle hunt, as told from one member of the tribe, and done so with candidness and a fair amount of humor, I must say. Jeff was a real treat to talk to. Thank you so much to Dr. Jeff Means for taking the time to talk with us today. We will put a link to his work in the episode post on our website at www.historyofsexpod.com for anybody who wants to check it out. Now, so far, we've heard how the tribe arose and then tried to save its way of life and gender norms from certain demise. Now, it's time for us to explore some of those gender roles in more detail. So next month, we will be looking at Lakota women, who have been particularly misunderstood in 19th century and later literature. Western observers all too often decried what they saw as the drudgery of Lakota women. They were practically slaves to their husbands, so they said. But were they? Or were they actually skilled craftspeople, honored in their tribe, and actually in some ways more empowered than their white counterparts at the time? It is a strange distortion of cultural lenses that demands to be brought into focus once and for all. And that's what we're going to do next time in our ongoing series, Sex on the Great Plains. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. You can also pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. Jeff Means had me draw his youngest child, Jordan, as a Lakota Winktay, which you can see on the supporters page of our website, along with dozens of other portraits. To get your portrait and support the Lakota tribe at the same time, just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, folks, I'll see you next time. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.